Tremor is a common movement disorder characterized by involuntary rhythmic muscle contractions that lead to shaking movements in one or more parts of the body. It is most commonly seen in the hands. The impact of tremor on an individual's life can be significant. It can interfere with daily activities like writing, drinking, eating, or using a phone or a computer. This not only affects physical abilities, but can also have emotional and social repercussions. People with tremor may experience frustration, embarrassment, and even social isolation due to challenges they face. There are various types of tremors, and there are many types of treatments like medications or sometimes even surgery like deeper brain stimulation. However, we will talk about Steadywear, a company that is at the forefront of innovative approach to managing these tremors. Unlike medication or surgery, which can have significant side effects or involve invasive procedures, Steadywear develops non-invasive devices designed to provide immediate tremor stabilization. These devices use technologies to detect and counteract tremor movements, offering a new level of freedom and independence to those affected by these conditions. With their focus on the ease of use, effectiveness, and improving quality of life, Steadywear represents a promising solution in ongoing challenge of managing tremor-related disorders. Steadywear innovatively adopts technologies originally designed for earthquake stabilization to address the human tremors. Without further ado, let's talk to the CEOs of Steadywear. Uh, welcome, Neil and Mark. I'm so happy to have you today. Um, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. It's good to be here. All right. Awesome. Yes, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. I've been following your progress for a while, and I'm very interested in learning more about it, uh, about Steadywear. So can you tell me what was the aha moment um, that led to the inception of Steadywear? Can you walk me the initial spark in the early days of getting the idea off the ground? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting beginning, actually, because so, um, you know, Emil and myself, we both have, you know, we both have tremors in our families. So, um, you know, I myself being an engineer, uh, having studied, um, you know, structural engineering, how to stabilize buildings and earthquakes, uh, it gave me this frame of reference and, you know, living that frustration firsthand of, you know, there is no real good solution for tremors. I just, my mind started just obsessing over it. And then finally, the two dots connected of why don't we use, why don't we use uh, earthquake technology as inspiration and um, actually create an application for tremors. And then, you know, obviously me and Emil met and then we shared that, we instantly shared that, uh, uh, that passion and we never really looked back. And I, I know Emil has a perspective on that as well. I, uh, yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was a perfect timing. Mark, Mark and I were introduced as neighbors. Um, I think Mark's grandmother got diagnosed around the same time that my grandmother got diagnosed with central tremor. And uh, we, we, were, we were looking at the options in the market and it was either, you know, something that you had to ingest that's bulleted with side effects or something very intrusive that was very expensive. And, you know, given Mark's background uh, in, in engineering, he, he saw things with a different lens. And uh, so we applied to a program at the University of Toronto where they prepared us to launch a company. 
and uh, equipped us with some awesome mentors and we hit the ground running and never looked back. I love it. Um, yeah, I hear you. Like my dad also had a central camera and that's why like when I saw the product, I was like, oh, wow, this is very interesting. Because like, um, I just want to touch base on essential tremor from the medical perspective. Uh, I've seen lots of patients with it and tremor, when it comes to tremor, like we classify to um, subcategories, we have the essential tremor, which is something that happens in elderly people, uh, usually comes with family history. Uh, it gets better with you drink alcohol, but you can't medicate with people with alcohol 24-7 to stop the tremor, right? My dad yeah. had essential tremor which like sucks. He always comes to me and asks me, okay, what should I do? What should I do? And like, well, you can try for Pranolol, you can touch on medications, there are first try, second try, but everything can be very frustrating for him. So it, it is a huge problem. And like people say like, well, like that is 50, 60, what's the problem? Well, if you think about it, my sister now, she's in health sciences and she is very afraid to find for surgery. Uh, as uh, uh, after doing medicine because of the essential tremor, it's something she, she had to think about. So if you have a family history of essential tremor, like it's something you have to keep in your mind. If you want to become a dentist or like a surgeon or anything that requires hand um, dexterity, so yeah. I think it's the problem is just beyond uh, old age and the treatments available out there is like it's frustrating. Um, I hear you, um, but stop me talking and like i just want to understand a bit so let's say uh, i'm an entrepreneur and like i'm in your shoes right now uh, yep. can you talk to me like what was the program how long was it what did you learn from it and like if you tell me like one take-home point from that program what would it be Emil, you wanna, wanna yeah i think um they, they they reflected on every single aspect of the business whether it was intellectual property they walked us through the process of how to file a patent, introduced us to the leading law firm um, that, that we should engage with, um, incorporation of a business, what the right structure is, um, how, how to build a, a slide deck. You know, we went through the Guy Kawasaki framework. Um, we went through how to build a go-to-market strategy. We went through basically every single step of the business canvas that you typically see. We had hours upon hours from leading experts in the space el elaborating on the process. And then they even brought in some of the government related funders that could help us find our first you know, grant to help us develop our first technology. And they gave us access to uh, some prototyping facilities where we were able to you know, machine and tool uh, a device that eventually became our first prototype. Yeah, and, and you know what, uh, Rupin, to add to that as well, I mean, they really, in summary, they they gave us the world rules because we're first-time founders. Um, so they really brought in a variety of experts, uh, you know, really gave us the world rules on how to avoid some obvious mistakes uh, to make. And um, it, I mean, it's been incredibly helpful. You know, it really gave us a framework on how to approach this. Um, you know, I mean, back in the day, obviously starting a company um, you know, and, uh, and Silicon Valley was more like the wild west, but now, you know, it's more of a discipline, you know, you have, uh, skill sets that you need to develop, um, you know, uh, pitching cash management, how to, how to manage a team, um, how to think about scale up. So there's so many different concepts and skills that, you know, they instill in us. And, and the truth is what you also learn is that the best 
the best way to actually learn is just by doing it. Um, and really every day is a new learning experience for us. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, so when you start a company, I think one of the major things that you face as a founder is setbacks. And sometimes like you have to pivot, you have to change uh, your trajectory. Have you faced like any similar moment uh, when you were starting this and uh, in your journey and uh, what was it and what did you do? Yeah, uh, I mean, that is, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we faced, we encountered so many different uh, junctures where it's, you know, uh, persevere or, you know, pivot or die. So in our case, every company usually comes with two buckets of risk. It's, it's usually either market risk or technical risk. At the start, for us, naturally, you know, it was technical risk, right? Uh, I mean, there was an obvious need for this product that we identified, but the technological risk was there. And that's where uh, the pivots and perseverance junctures happen. So early stages of tech development, you know, tremors are very complicated. Each tremor patient has uh, a certain frequency uh, and a certain amplitude, and those variables change wildly, even between activities number one number two the research available on tremors it's very limited i mean if you have a problem you want to solve you should spend 95 percent of the time thinking about the problem and understanding it and five percent of the time solving it you know so uh for us you know the struggle is really gathering a good understanding of the problem to come up with an effective solution right so that that naturally came with time and we had to persevere build a variety of virgins, release them on the market, gather feedback, iterate. So it really was a mix of perseverance in terms of, uh, you know, fighting to to get to the right solution that meets the requirement of tremors and tremor patients and uh, pivoting, you know, making changes to the technology, upgrading and making it better. And it really, you know, uh, the fact that we were able to pivot and persevere is why we're here today. That's the truth. Yeah, so some of the pivots I can reflect on includes... Um you know, launching, launching a medical device during COVID, although it was a class one, we still needed to find some validation and we needed to, to, to at least get some people to give us testimonials, some people to show the device works. And, you know, because all, all the clinical trial sites were not accepting new trials, we had to go direct to market uh, through the B2C channel. And uh, what we learned very quickly is that is a completely different strategy. It requires a lot more resources, whether it's customer service, whether it's marketing, customer support, you name it. We had to basically adapt on, and pivot every step of the way to get to a point where we realized, okay, now we have enough validation and we pivoted again back to B2B. Most recently in the past two quarters, but once we had enough feedback from the customers, we went back to the B2B channel and uh, and found our way comfortably there. And now we're we're going to be running a new trial with a newer version of the technology. Yeah, so I, I just want to also add, like from my perspective, uh, people like look at tremors. Um, I think we can tackle this, both of us. Uh, so you can talk about like the, technolo the, the technological aspect of the device. I can talk about the tremor. So, People look at tremor as tremor, but as you mentioned earlier, like tremor comes with like different flavors. So you have the resting tremor that we see in patients with Parkinson's disease. 
and then you have the actionable tremor that comes with different disease. I'm, I'm not going to go through the differential diagnosis, but you have some tremors that happen with stress, some tremors happen with action. And as you mentioned, you have the pillow rolling tremor that like usually we see it in patients with Parkinson's disease. We have the essential tremor that is like usually up and down when we change objects. We have tremor that comes due to strokes when we have a stroke in the cerebellum, which is like the organ that coordinates um, our movements. So there are many types of tremor. And that, when, when I saw the technology, I was surprised. So let's assume like I'm, I, I have zero knowledge about medicine, technology, and um, I really don't, I only know tremor. How can you explain to me how the technology works? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a great question. So look, I mean, from our standpoint, we look at this as a mechanical uh, engineering problem. Uh, the way we, we, we look at the human arm, the human arm is uh, essentially like a beam that vibrates and our technology is there to absorb the vibration. Okay, so simply put, the way this tech works, uh, picture uh, a block, a mass, okay, and a spring attached to it. And uh, that spring is then, uh, you know, attached to, uh, to a, vibrating, um, a vibrating piece of metal. So when the piece of metal vibrates, the spring and the mass will move against it. And eventually what, what happens is that mass is going to vibrate instead of that piece of metal. So it's basically absorbing the vibration of the metal by vibrating itself, right? That's how this technology works. So that's the simplest form of it. What we did with it is we essentially we replaced those springs with repulsive magnets. You know, uh, magnets that you, you, you know, a lot of people have played with magnets throughout their life for sure. So when you have two magnets and you sort of bring them together, uh, north face to the north face, they're very, they're repulsive and you feel that, you feel that resisting force increase very fast the closer they get together. So we replaced those springs with repulsive magnets and that has huge advantages for tremors. So, the mass spring mechanism, that really works well for one frequency. So what we learned when we were evaluating tremors is that they jump, tremor frequencies jump from three hertz to five to seven, depending on what you're doing. And so using repulsive magnets actually allowed us, allowed the system to target a wide variety of frequencies. It becomes much more versatile that way. And, and that's why it's so appropriate for, uh, for tremors themselves, right? So it's li literally, uh, a, a mass, it's a disc controlled by magnets that moves against the tremor. Yeah. Gotcha. I hope yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. I'm very involved in the deck in a way, uh, but I hope that was um, that was clear, was it? No, it makes sense. It makes sense. I was just going to add, like, I always advocate, like, for we need more physician founders, we need more physician founders. But, like, I think I have to rethink about what I say. Because like, if you didn't have you know, the background that you guys have, I yeah. don't think any physician were like, I, I would like these million years to think about maybe magnets, maybe like can absorb this, like, you know. <laughs> you know what, uh, Rupin, that's, that's, actually, um, that's actually a really important topic. Uh, it's the multidisciplinary aspect of this. I... Mm -hmm. Myself couldn't have you know accomplished this uh, alone you know i had to work with designers i had to work with physicians to understand tremors i had to work with 
um, uh, vibration mechanics experts, mechanical engineering experts. So it, it's really um, a collective effort. You know, this physician input is critical in this as well, right? Uh, as important as engineering, uh, um, vibration engineering input, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really a collective effort. Yeah. Nice. Um, so what makes really healthcare different from uh, other spaces? So if you want to become like a tech engineer, you just create a product, put it on the app store, release it in the market and see that the market will uh, say the word. But like when it comes to healthcare, there are lots of regulations. And one of the big regulators are like FDA and Health Canada in North America. Um, where are you guys when it comes to the FDA or Health Canada? And how are you navigating this? I mean, it's uh, the FDA and Health Canada. I mean, those regulatory bodies are there to really uh, ensure that any any device that's hitting the market is safe, first of all. So it's really about risk evaluation. So you have uh, systematic, um, um, you know, uh, systematic lists in place. Your device is going to fall into a certain category of risk. So if you happen to fall under a class one risk device, which is a low risk, um, then the regulatory process is actually simpler, right? It's uh, you, you have to register your facility as a, as a manufacturer, uh, you know, provided that you fall under that risk class. So for example, think about these wrist braces for carpal tunnel or, uh, or other wrist braces that you would see at a pharmacy. Those are class one devices and we fall under the same risk class. So for us, it was really straightforward from a regulatory standpoint. And we're sort of an interesting intersection as a company because we are, uh, you know, we are a company that is in the medical space, but because our regulatory pathway is more straightforward, it allows us more flexibility in terms of how, um, you know, how many barriers we have to commercialization, right? The barriers become different. They're not necessarily from a regulatory standpoint. They're more, uh, is the technology appropriate for the problem? And how do you scale up? Uh, you know, what's the clinical strategy? Those become the set of problems. So it's really a different approach. Um, and, and you know, companies with a higher risk class, class two, class three, it's a completely different process. It takes years. Uh, you need a predicate device for the FDA. You have to conduct um, multiple clinical trials. It, it's a completely different process. Yeah, I hear you. Sometimes the FDA is not uh, as as you mentioned. I think it was like. Part of it, there is like some patient education and reaching the market. Um, talking about that, um, I, I want also like pick your brain on. I, I think uh, Emil, you mentioned earlier about like B two B, B two C, and like, can you tell me like who is your customer? Like, what's your market segment that you are trying to reach, and how are you reaching them? That's a great question. You know, so um, with with the steady with the steady one device. And the stay two device, we went direct to consumer and we had a couple of distributors in the pipeline too. So we were actually shopping, shopping it to the end user, to their caregiver, uh, their family members, and sometimes their children. Um, their caregivers umbrella included their occupational therapist, their physical therapist, their caregiver in the senior care facility that they might be in. And in some cases, it was also, uh, you know, their spouse, their family member. So we had quite a few different customer personas that we had to tackle and we had to adjust our marketing to accommodate all these different stakeholders. Now on the 
Then on the distributor side, uh, we, we had our, your typical medical device distributors. They, uh, maybe they had some, some more specific, specific markets that they tackled. For example, we have one that only tackles the veteran affairs market. Um, in the rest of world, what we're seeing emerge is that, and we're seeing this now with the study three also, and more specifically is that assistive devices have their own distributors in many jurisdictions, and they vary from your typical medical dis device distributor. So we had to cater to them, identify which conferences they were at. And last but not least, um, you know, when you're working with B2B2C, which is, you know, clinic demonstrations, activities in hospitals, activities uh, where the device is being demonstrated prior to the purchase of the product and the patient can try it before they buy it. We had to work with, cl with clinicians, neurologists, and of course, owner operators, and last but not least, clinic managers. Those are, in a nutshell, the top, top 10 I could think of. Um, I know it sounds like a lot, uh, but uh, we, we've narrowed it down now to just medical device distributors or assistive device distributors, and mainly clinicians, uh, clinic managers, and neurologists. Yeah, I agree with you. I think like uh, it's 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 not easy to know like who is the main buyer of your product. It's something that comes, especially like when it comes to patients. Like not lots of patients think that there is a mechanism. They're like ah, I am a physician, and I never thought about like oh, there is something like this. And that's what got me excited the first time. Like I I saw this because I I saw it, like I thought it's very innovative. Um, it takes time to figure out like who's uh, your target uh, customer, and I think you 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 touched upon very important thing uh what makes uh, i think the medical device space and the healthcare space different is marketing and how to market and where to market you mentioned conferences and i think this is really undervalued uh marketing strategy that not lots of health tech startups try to utilize uh, one of the companies that i'm advisor for yesterday we were talking and they were like Oh my God, lots of my customers came to conferences and I didn't realize that. I, I wish I paid more attention to conferences. Not only that, I was, I'm a big fan of Shark Tank. So I was watching Shark Tank. There was like a medical, similar to medical device, eye patch. And the, this person who created this very nice looking eye patch for young people, uh, she didn't do any social media marketing, which is against all the rules that all companies that appear on Shark Tank. She mainly went to, uh, uh, like medical offices, ophthalmologists, of, of, of optometrists, and I think the same here. Like knowing how to reach your because like you need patient education, and that's yes. what uh, you have to reach the right segment. Sorry, no, no like would I, you, or Mark, were you gonna add anything? I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'll give you an example. I just attended the American Congress of Rehab Medicine conference mm -hmm. uh, this past week, and what I understood, what I what a lot of the feedback I got is. Hey, is there a CEU, a continuing education course that elaborates <laughs> on assistive devices in the tremor space? Uh, if not, are you open to partaking in creating one? Um, wow. Activities like that are critical to elaborating on the options that are available for the occupational therapists, especially because you know, OTs and PTs, the physical therapists, they have to take CEUs every year. 
to progress their career and maintain their their in the no status. Um, that's something that is also, uh, you know, not not very clear in the market. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Conferences are underrated. Um, they we our first and our first distributor came from a conference. Our second distributor came from a conference. Um, it's they they're a blessing in disguise. And you know the for the prices can look intimidating up front, but uh, you know when you go out and do your direct to consumer marketing on these different channels like social media ads and stuff, and you come back and you compare the price to a conference, you quickly realize that the conference is more targeted and the acquisition cost, if you're at the right place if you're at the right conference is significantly lower. Now to the point of the, if you're at the right conference, that can be a little bit tricky. A lot of them have uh, very, very similar names and uh, you just have to make sure to look at the sponsors and you'll have a better idea of what's going on there. Also, also Ruben, you know, it really depends on the nature of the company mm -hmm. uh, and the stage of the company. So take a medical device company, let's say, um, you know, wants to have a published clinical trial, then it makes sense for them to go to a targeted conference for the right. Um, uh, you know, let's say it's uh, uh, it's it's an AI software that helps with uh, early cancer detection. Then they can go to an oncology conference with their poster, and um, you know, start physician education, which then leads to patient education. But then, if you're, you know, uh, on the flip side, if you're a uh, a purely commercial product and there's an established online marketplace, then, you know, conferences aren't necessarily relevant. So it's really a case-by-case -case thing, I think. Every company is unique in, uh, in that sense. Yeah, I can't agree more. Um, yeah. So in terms of product development, uh, what was the biggest challenge you faced when you were creating the club? And like, how did you overcome this challenge? I can't, this is like very like a black box. How to create a product. Oh yeah, uh, it's a black box. And I have, I have some really cool insights to share. I think I think the main thing and where a lot of uh, founders go wrong, where I went wrong at the start is, I mean, you have to build a set of product requirements. You, you know, this is the surefire way to get it right. Because... Every product has a set of requirements, um, you know, to ensure product market fit. And where a lot of where I've made mistakes and where other people have as well, other founders. Um, let's say you have an engineer and a designer working together on a team. Okay, and they're trying to solve a problem. Uh, the engineer, uh, all the engineer cares about is how well how well the device works and how sound is the engineering. What the designer cares about is how good the device looks. And imagine these two are working without a set of clearly defined requirements. You're going to end up with a mess because uh, the, the engineer is purely focused on function. The designer is purely focused on how it looks and no one is working off. You're not on the same page. So how do you get on the same page, right? If let's say, uh, let's say you have must haves for your device and want to have for your device. So uh, an example of, of a must-have that the device cannot exceed um, 200 grams, okay? A, a common mistake is, okay, you build, a, you build a prototype, you get it working. It's above 200 grams, but 
it seems all right. Let's do it. That's a mistake. You need a checklist, a very strict checklist that you agree on even before you start. Because once you start to, uh, you know, get, uh, what's the word? Uh, loosey-goosey with your checklist, that's where the mistakes start. That's where the problems start to arise, okay? So I think the real thing is to take a stakeholder's approach. You have to evaluate every single stakeholder involved with your product. In our case, I'll give an example. It's the patient, uh, the person demonstrating the product, um, the manufacturer, right? There's a whole list of stakeholders. And uh, each stakeholder, we have to understand their requirements. We have to marry them, turn them into a checklist of what the product has to do, what the constraints are, and have the entire team of designers, engineers, clinicians work off the same list. And, you know, that comes from patient interviews, neurologist interviews, as I mentioned. It has to be fed from data. So uh, just to come back to the original question, our, our problem at the start is that we weren't using really this method. We were just trying to get something that works quickly. Uh, but you know, naturally, uh, naturally we adopted this method and that's when we started to see success. Uh, so that's what I recommend. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think you brought an important point. Uh, sorry. Uh, were you saying anything? Oh, no, I was just saying the stakeholder approach is what I, is, is really the key here. Yeah. Yeah. I can't agree more. Like, you know, like every day, like, uh, I'm, I, I love Apple products. I love them. I have like, uh, the, the nice thing is like the, the, I'm, I'm in love with the design and every day like when I go to patient's room and I see the monitors when I'm in the hospital I look at the computers the design of the technology in healthcare sucks yeah and you brought up the idea of having a designer working with them which I which I it's very important man like don't pay attention to design in med medicine at all no I mean uh, it, depending on which device you're you're talking about, there's always uh, there's always an industrial design component, and the industrial mm -hmm. design his job is to make um, is to make the device a functional device, uh, manufacturable, and uh, has to look good as well. You know, the industrial designer has a really complicated, difficult job, um, and I think uh, I think it comes down to the same thing. You know, most of the successful products I've seen. It comes from uh, really an understanding of, um, uh, of what the end user needs. Uh, at, at the end of the day, it's a discretized specific list of what the product has to do so that the end user is happy. And the entire team has to work together and follow that list. So when you look at a device and you say, this device sucks and I hate using it, all that tells me is that the... Um, the team behind this device uh, didn't interview enough physicians. They didn't understand the problem enough. They didn't understand the user interface enough and no one was on the same page. That, that's what it tells me. Yeah. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think like, uh, I, I don't wanna talk a lot about the UI UX in healthcare, but like, I think no one like, especially like interview physicians and no one interview patients enough. Um, I can talk about EMRs like 24 seven and I can, uh, I'm frustrated by the amount of data that pulls in front of me every single day when I look into patients' uh, EMR electronic medical record. Like, I don't need all this. All I need is their notes, medications, and the orders that they have or whatever. Like, all I need is two to three tabs. And they are like, 
5,000 tabs that I don't need and I can't remove them from my face, which is very frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. That's, that's exactly, uh, that's exactly the problem. Uh, I think because it, it, that's, that's what's going to drive adoption as well. You know, if you get mm -hmm. the user interface, right. And physicians are happy in, in the medical world, when you're commercializing either a device or, um, uh, anything, a therapeutic, a diagnostic, um, it's all about the physician and the patient or whoever it's, it's one or the other that's using it. Right. Yeah. And you have to, make sure that it's meeting their requirements. So EMR software has to meet your requirements, your physician. Uh, and if it doesn't, then it's not going to get adopted at scale. You know? Yeah, it's it's not only that, it's not about like how I like it. It's also patient safety with concern. But because like when I'm facing all this data, oh, by the end of the day, like my brain stops processing and I just make mistakes by omitting for example, it's for, for me, it's important to go to the blood work for every patient, the imaging for every patient, the notes are written for every patient. And this is what I need. I don't need their date of birth or their vaccination to manage their care while they're in the hospital. If there was a system that gives me only the important thing that I need, so this will decrease my risk of omitting looking into this data and taking decisions. Anyways, we're not going to go to the EMR. Um, back to my questions about steadyware. Uh, you, you, you've been in the market and uh, medical devices are expensive and it takes time and takes funding. Um, so what are the hurdles that you face when you were trying to seek funding, uh, reach out to funders? Um, what were the challenges and how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah. Uh, you, you want to go first, Mark? Go ahead, man. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I Well, some of the hurdles that we came across were, you know, um, Nobody knows anything about this market. There isn't a lot of market research out about uh, out of uh, available. Um, it's not it's not AI. It's not in, in in the in these sexy realms that everybody is looking into. Uh, it falls in between wearable, med tech, and consumer goods. So you can't really go to a specific uh, VC and say, "Hey, this is what we're this is what we're pitching and." This is totally up your alley. It's not, it, you know, there isn't exactly, a, we're now seeing more progress in that space, but age tech, senior tech, uh, assistive device technology, it's not like there are too many programs that you can knock up, knock on their door and say, oh, hey, we'd love to pitch to you. Um, you really have to create the need and create the demand and the interest and then fall back to it. I mean, it starts with, uh, look, we were really fortunate here, um, Rupin, because, um, you know, we were able to access a lot of a lot of grants in the early days uh, that really accelerated development. It sort of gave us, um, uh, you know, it gave us the runway to actually build the tech and work with, um, uh, you know, expand the team, work with work with engineers and designers to to improve the tech and bring it to the point where. Uh, we have an MVP and we can commercialize it. So really, uh, the advantage of grants at the start, um, you know, really helped us. Um, really helped us accelerate development, and it's what you do with the grant money uh, in the first years, in the first year or two of your operation, uh, that can help you actually start to get institutional money because you'll be hitting milestones and uh, and metrics that make you investable, right? So. I think it's really important at the start to leverage uh, government grants. And, and I have to say that 
you know, you do, uh, you execute well and you create a track record for yourself uh, with grant funding that you've received as a first time founder, um, you know, you have uh, a track record and clearly, uh, you know, in our, in our case, there's a big market for Tremors, uh, right? It's, it's a multi-billion dollar a year, um, uh, multi-billion dollar a year opportunity in the U.S. So uh, there always there will always be funding uh, for uh, for good companies that are that are targeting a specific need, and that's how we we, we raised our first round in 2021, right? We had accomplished quite a bit with government grants. We built a product, we commercialized it, we got feedback, we built a second one, and uh, really at that stage, you know, we had a strong track record, strong market. And that's what accelerated the fundraising uh, for us. Fundraising in and of itself is a, is a full-time job almost, but as Emil was alluding to. But uh, I think you get the groundwork done uh, with uh, you know, documentation, uh, having, um, having good, uh, good methods uh, to build the product, product market fit. There's a lot of different... Uh, a lot of different aspects and elements that you have to get right, but then uh, you know fundamentally um, you'll get funded. But there's a whole checklist of things to go through first, especially as a first-time founder. I don't know how else to put this. <laughs> no, yeah. I agree. I think you mentioned something very important here, uh, which like uh, I so so I did lots of like pitches, and uh, one of the common questions is what are you going to do with the money? What are you going to do with the funds? But I don't think lots of people ask, or rarely ask, okay, so what have you done with the previous money? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. And, and it's what kind of traction you build. And it's not only that, uh, Rupin, you know, it's also, and this is the biggest, you know, this was the biggest revelation for us before we close our first round, is how, um, how well thought out is your scale-up strategy to the detail? I mean, uh, you know, it's really nice to to give projections and say, yeah, you know, we're going to generate $100 million in four years. That's great. But I'm talking about the backbone of everything. Uh, everything has to be connected in, in your pitch. Your projections uh, have to be connected to a go-to-market strategy very clearly. And those have to be connected to required resources to execute that go-to-market strategy to then tie into the projections. And obviously, all of this is tied into product market fit which expands into how you developed your product. Did you develop it the right way? Did you use a stakeholder approach to make sure there's product market fit? So it's really about, you, 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 want, you want to raise money? All of these aspects have to be aligned. Otherwise, uh, you know, investors are professional skeptics at the end of the day, right? So if you haven't thought out every aspect of your operation really well, then that's risky for them, right? There's no, there's no reason to invest. So when we use the grant money at the start we do it to actually start thinking about building the product aligning all these things together to actually create a nice uh, executable vision that, that's what it is they're, they're they're investing in you at the end of the day and and i think if you don't align all of these aspects of your business they won't trust you and then they don't have a reason to honestly why would they yeah yeah, yeah. More. especially like i, I think Investors are skeptical professionals. Is that is that the term you used? Yeah, and and I completely exactly. Agree. I can't agree more. <laughs> I I completely agree with the way they do things. They have to do that, or else they won't be able to find which companies are investable and which ones aren't. And 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 that's not only good for investors. That's good for the companies too, because it pushes us to actually think things through and, mm -hmm. and do it. You know, and we're happy about that because yeah. 
Yeah, I, 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 when I like, attend pitches, I'm like, I, I see the amount of questions usually founders ask, and I was like, oh my God, like, you should really know every single detail and every single answer for every single question to get, especially like people who invest in health tech, uh, either like your physician angel investors who really understand medicine and really understand like uh, they have a business background, or they are VCs who are backed by PhD uh, people, PhD students or PhD grads, and working with PhD with like it's, it's it's very hard not because like it's uh, they have difficult because personality because like they are very 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 detail oriented. That was right. that that's what research make research makes you like. Researchers are unbelievably in a good way in a good way. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, absolutely, and I think a really a really important aspect of this as well is to. Is to build a good uh, advisory board around you to cover some mm -hmm. of your right as a company. I mean, uh, Emil and myself were really complementary in terms of skill sets, but you know, in terms of um, uh, clinical background, uh, neurology, um, you know, there's a variety of aspects where you know we have external advisors that are there to really, you know, got help guide us. And I think that's really critical too. Yeah, they're not there to run your company. Uh, you have to make the the, the 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 executives make the decisions, but I think they have to be well informed decisions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how how is the feedback so far from the medical community? Like you have advisors around you, they uh, they are MDs, um, and other than the advisor, like the people who use the device, how, how do they find it? Oh man, yeah. Uh, I mean, we we've had incredible feedback from the batch, uh, and yeah, we have a. Uh, you know, we're working closely with Pisces Healthcare. So it's a distributor for uh, for veteran affairs specifically, and they have some great feedback too. We collect clinical data as well from our patients on the Quest scale. So the quality of life and essential tremor. And we've seen more than two thirds of patients experience a significant improvement in quality of life. So, you know, we, we, we couldn't be happier. The patients are happy. And I know Emil has, has quite a bit of input here as well. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, we we've we've garnered a lot of feedback. You know, as Mark mentioned, we've surveyed every single different stakeholder imaginable. We've surveyed over two thousand people with tremors to date, um, more more than a hundred clinicians between neurologists and, and occupational therapists, and uh, some of them some of them have given us awesome feedback. For example. We have patients that are using the device to shave their beards. We have patients that are using the device to apply makeup as as as, as uh, like eyeliner, for example. Or there 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 are people that are using it to drink, eat, everything you can imagine. Carpenters, uh, clarinet players. We we've heard it all at this point. Um, you, you know, sorry, go ahead, Amy. Come on. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna add. You know, we have all this, uh, we have all this real world, uh, real world evidence. It's always a mouthful uh, that we gathered, and and at this point, you know, we're working with a lot of different movement disorders hospitals in the U.S., and you know, that's gonna set the stage for uh, our clinical study as well, which we're really excited about. Um, I mean, we have the protocols in place, and right now we're just um, we're finalizing product specs. So I think. You know, getting uh, moving up the ladder in terms of the uh, the evidence we're gathering, and uh, you know, get clinical evidence is, is the next step. Yeah, but that doesn't stop us from commercializing, given the feedback already, the incredible feedback we have from RWE. Yeah. 
Yeah, you mentioned something important here, like in, in, in your comments that about the feedback, some people were able to shave or apply mascara. And one of the questions that one, someone will ask when they see the device, which is who is going to wear the device all day long? Well, like sometimes you don't need to wear the device all day long. Sometimes like there's a certain thing. Let's imagine you're a 65 year old, 70 year old, live by yourself, no one is around you, and you need to shave and you can't do that for essential family. Is it is worth it to like worth it to wear this for like 10 to 15 minutes while you're shaving, while you're eating? Of course it's worth it. Yeah. Well, yeah, most definitely. It will save them time, it will reduce their anxiety, increase their independence and their confidence in themselves while reducing their caretaking costs. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's really nice to see that, uh, you know, our, our clients are actually regaining their independence. That's a really big motivating factor for us as well, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to push the boundaries and make the products even better. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly rewarding. And, 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 uh, and yeah, they don't have to use a device uh, every minute of every day. Uh, I think every patient has um, their own specific set of, I want to use this device to uh, to be able to uh, to have a meal, uh, you know, without issues. Or I want to get back to painting. Or you know, it, it's it's a uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of variance in in what everyone needs, right? Uh, looking forward, uh, what's the horizon for Steadyware? Are there any developments or expansion in the work that you already started, or are you thinking about expanding into other types of products? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, with us, we're laser focused on tremors um, because with our uh, with our tech and with our pipeline, you know, we're confident that we're going to disrupt the continuum of care uh, around the world w with, uh, um, you know, with our offerings. So uh, at the end of the day, um, we have the Steady 3, which is going to be um, our next pipeline product. Uh, incredibly exciting just with the efficacy metrics that that go with it, uh, you know, it's going to be unparalleled. And our goal is to add um, more products down the line. So the Steady Cup is going to come after the Steady Three, um, because we know that uh, you know drinking is one of the toughest activities for uh, for patients, and and we want to we want to create a, a you know an an individual solution for that down the line as well. Even though the glove can target everything, uh, but yeah, it's really about uh, layering a variety of uh, of options. We want to be the one-stop shop for Tremor solutions around the world. So that's that's the vision. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Um, yeah. And what about uh, competition? Like, are there any other competitors in the market who are creating something similar? And what makes you unique and different? Yeah, I mean, competition-wise, um, co competition-wise, if we look at alternative therapies, uh, you know, there's the um, the Cala device, um, really good therapeutic device, has solid efficacy, um, but at the same time, you know, it costs five grand. It's a prescription-only device, and uh, they can use it for an hour a day. So it's um, it has its limitations. Um, you know, there are other other solutions like the Liftware spoon. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's the self-stabilizing spoon. They got bought out by Google in 2015. Really cool company as well. Uh, but I think, you know, with, with our approach, uh, with our approach and our offering, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, having unlimited usage, um, the device being uh, battery free, so you can use it as uh, however long, however long you need, right? 
Uh, it's very high efficacy. I mean, it's exceeding anything anywhere uh, at 85%. I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I think we have uh, we have a very strong competitive positioning. Uh, Not to mention the affordability uh, compares compared to some of the other players out there. Uh, I think it's a, it's really a sweet spot there. Yeah. All right. So um, we're almost at time. I only have a couple of questions left. Um, regarding a scaling, how do you envision scaling? Where do you see your market? Do you want to stay like in North America or do you want to expand worldwide? Uh, certainly worldwide expansion is the goal, right? So we work with uh, distributors outside the United States. So, um, you know, in Australia and South Korea, Japan, uh, the MENA region and Europe as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are our, our next target geographies. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., that's where we're more hands-on, U.S. and Canada. So that's where we'll be, um, you know, working with Pisces Healthcare and the VA, as well as um, working with uh, with clinics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my last question for entrepreneurs who are listening, what's the one piece of advice you're going, you're giving to someone who is looking to start in a medtech company, who's going to start in a medtech space, other than don't start in a medtech space. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah, that, was my, that was my initial thought, but uh, Emil. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I think there, you need to have great synergy with your co-founders. Um, you need to have each other's backs, you need to be able to trust and complement each other's skill sets in order to really fill the gaps in a team and uh, persevere through the winters. Um, I think, you know, the, uh, my, my core philosophy is this, uh, Rupin, I think great companies are built around great products. Okay. And, mm -hmm. and great products are built around, um, great products are, are built around the right approach. So please, if you're thinking about starting a hardware company of any kind, medical or otherwise, just use the stakeholder approach and, you know, uh, save yourself, uh, save yourself time and um, heartache. Yeah, because you want to you, you want to build a great company, build a great product. It's really simple. Yeah, yeah. especially in the healthcare space. I, I, I'll just add to that, that, uh, you know, great products are all built by great people. So <laughs> make sure you have the right team. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs>